It is a delight to be with you this morning. Um, Sherry and I have had the opportunity to serve in this role of regional team leader uh, for the past two years, and it has given us the opportunity to do something that for 32 years we didn't get to do, and that is we're in a different church every Sunday. Uh, after a long uh, season of being in the same church every Sunday, I don't know, the church that I pastored was very fussy about that. They wanted me to show up every Sunday. Uh, we've just delighted in having the opportunity to get to know so many people and visit so many different places. And uh, our role is very, very simple. We are here to serve. We're here to serve our pastors and their wives and families, and we're here to serve the church and uh, particularly when a church goes through transition, I always try to make it a habit to be at that church the following Sunday. Just to echo what you've already heard is that during this season of transition, you are not going to be walking through this alone. We're part of a family. And uh, the Western Pennsylvania District is made up of 140 congregations, just like yours, spread out all over this part of the state. Collectively, on a good Sunday, pre-COVID, uh, we would have looked like 18,000 people gathering together to worship in 140 locations. But together, we're able to do more than what any one of us could ever do individually. And to testify to that, I want to let you know that because of your faithful giving to the Great Commission Fund in 2020, which I don't know about you, but it was a little bit of an unusual year, the Western PA District gave more than $4 million to the Great Commission Fund to support the work globally of what God is doing. And you can give Jesus a hand for that. I'm fine with that if you want to do that. He is good and he is faithful. So we come alongside and uh, that's really what we're here to do is to encourage you. And I pray that God's word will be an encouragement to you. Would you pray with me as we get started? Jesus, we welcome you. We have felt your presence in this place and we celebrate the fact that your promise is that when we gather together, even two or three, your promise is that when we begin to celebrate you, when we begin to worship you, there's always another person present. You show up, you come, you inhabit the praise of your people. It's your home address, it's where you are most comfortable. And we have already experienced that today as we've gathered around the table, as we have lifted our voices in praise. And now as we look to your word, we pray that your word might speak to us, that you would encourage our hearts today and be glorified in what is said. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Monday was a rare day for me. I was not on the road. Uh, many days of the week I spend time on the road, uh, and I hook up with pastors, and I usually have breakfast, lunch, and dinner out connecting with people and having meetings, and it's a, a really good experience. We're enjoying it thoroughly. But this past Monday was going to be sermon prep day. I knew that I was preaching today, and so I sat in my office, which is the, one of the rooms in our house, and first thing in the morning, and I thought, I'm just going to have some free time here to really be able to focus on preparing the message for Sunday, and then I heard a noise. Now, our, we live in a neighborhood where our next door neighbor is about 10 yards away. We're very close. Even if we didn't want to be, we're very close to our neighbors. And would you believe it that on the day that I had the whole day to just be in the office studying and making phone calls, our neighbors decided that that would be the perfect day for them 
to reshingle the roof of their home. And from 7 o'clock in the morning until dusk, the sound of hammering, pounding, workers, making a lot of noise. And I got to tell you, my first thought was not, well, God bless them. Aren't they wonderful neighbors? I'm going to pray for them. I don't know what that says about me, but that was, my, that was my first reaction. And my first reaction was, ah, frustration. Because I, I'm a goal person. I start every day with a list of things that I want to get accomplished. And I looked at that list and I looked out the window and I thought, I am going to be hindered in what I want to do today by all of the commotion going on next door. And it just didn't seem fair. I hadn't done anything wrong and I had a lot to do and it was good stuff. I wasn't just playing games on my computer. I was trying to prepare a a sermon. The dictionary defines hindered as when difficulties are created that result in delay. And that's what I was feeling. Sometimes we are hindered by things that we don't have any control over. Last December, we were hindered by weather. We were over in Punxsutawney trying to get back home to Grove City where we live, and a storm had set in, and we were creeping along Interstate 80, about 35 miles an hour. I had to stop three times to get the ice off of my windshield wipers. Meanwhile, the tractor-trailer trucks were zipping by at their average speed, and I was hindered. I wanted to get home, but I couldn't. Some of you have known what it's been like to be hindered by health. Through no fault of your own, the plan that you had has been interrupted by a health concern. All of us at one point or another have felt the impact of being hindered by economics. We just don't have the resources to be able to do the things that we'd like to do. Someone once wrote that if your income, if your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. And haven't we all felt that from time to time? We wish we had the finances to be able to do the things we want to, but we're hindered. The past two years have been filled with hindrances, haven't they? We have not been able to do the things that we wanted to do, and even the way that we wanted to do them because of a global pandemic. When I visit churches, we often have BC conversations. Before COVID, this is what we were doing. Before COVID, this is what we looked like. Pastor, before you get up there and look at the congregation, I want you to know that before COVID, we had twice as many people as we have now, as if they're to blame for it. Church attendance has been impacted. Giving has been impacted. Ministries have been impacted. And we have discovered that it hasn't been easy. If there's one word that I would use to describe the pastors in the 45 churches that I work with, it's weary. They're tired. There have been so many decisions and there's been so much conflict and so much tension and so many different ideas about what to do. It has left many people just weary. And when you're weary, you're hindered. And the question has come up often, why can't we just do things that we need to do? Why are we hindered? Why can't things just go smoothly for a while? And then, as the cherry on top of the ice cream, you enter into a season of pastoral transition. Didn't see that one coming? What did we do wrong? Nothing. But the first impression is to glance out the window and listen to the sound of shingles being ripped off a roof and go, 
How are we going to be able to function? How are we going to be able to minister during a time when it seems like we're being hindered? I want to tell you a story today. It's the story of a man who was completely devoted to the kingdom of God. I mean, more than most, this guy had such a passion within him. He burned to do ministry. And he racked up the miles. I think I rack up the miles. He racked up the miles. And this was even before the RAV4 had been invented. So he gets the nod for superiority. He was out there dealing with people before roads had practically been invented. His devotion was unquestioned. His success was measurable. But... It didn't seem that God had cleared a path for him to be able to do it easily. And at times, his life was filled with problems, hindrances, you may call them. And it seemed that if God in his sovereignty would have just seen fit to do something different, he could have been twice as successful. He could have had twice the impact. He could have gone to twice as many places to preach the gospel. But God in his sovereignty didn't have that as the blueprint for Paul's life. In the course of Paul's ministry, he dealt with things like constant health issues, not just once in a while, but constant health issues. The man got shipwrecked. He had death threats. He was in trouble with the religious leaders. If he had a regional team leader, he would have been in trouble with the regional team leader. He was in trouble with the church leaders. He was in trouble with the government authorities. He had trouble with his co-workers. Couldn't seem to get along all the time. At one point, he was arrested. Now, I don't know about how you feel, but when the resumes start to flow into your leadership team, if your potential new pastor has an arrest record, you might look twice at him. Paul had been in prison multiple times. This man was literally snake bit. And we read his story in the book of Acts, chapter 28. If you have your Bible, would you turn there with me to the gospel that Paul tells in Acts, chapter 28. Now, it's a long story. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're just going to pick up in verse 15. Actually, let's back up and look at verse 14 for a second, and then we'll pick up some momentum and go into verse 15. Acts, chapter 28 beginning in verse 14. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. Now that's not part of our story today, so that doesn't mean a lot, but this is where we really get rolling. And so we came to Rome. Rome is the setting for our story today. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. That's called house arrest, and Paul was under house arrest. Three days later, beginning in verse 17, three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, Although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. 
The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, the church. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said. Others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will Listen, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Folks, there are things in scripture that either are wrong or they are so incredible that they're hard to believe. This is one of them. Paul has the opportunity to come to Rome. Rome is the biggest metropolitan area that Paul will ever have the opportunity to present the gospel to. There is so much fertile soil there for Paul to be able to do ministry. And finally, his dream of being able to bring the gospel to Rome is fulfilled. I can't imagine the excitement. But wait, there's a hindrance. He has been arrested, he has been confined by the Romans. And instead of Paul being free to be able to minister as he sees fit, his itinerary is being controlled by the Roman government. They're in charge. They're dictating terms. Paul, this is where you're going to live. Paul, this is what it's going to look like. You will not be able to go wherever you want to go. You will not have freedom. You will not be able to go to places to preach the gospel. You are confined right here to this house, which apparently Paul also had to pay for. Now, I got to tell you, there's a lot of things in what I just said that I don't like. doesn't make any sense to me. God, why would you allow this? Your servant, who is so devoted to you that he's been stoned and walked away from it. 
is hindered from being able to do what he really longs to do. There are so many people out there who don't long to do ministry. Here's one who does, and God seemingly is blocking him from being able to do his maximum effort. What I want you to see today is how Paul responds to his circumstances. Because in verse 17, the first thing that we see is that after arriving in Rome, three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. Now, please understand something. This is not leaders of the church. This is leaders of the community. There's no reason to believe that we're dealing with church leaders here. We're dealing with people in the community, unbelievers, pagans, leaders of the local synagogue. And he engages them in a conversation, and this is what it sounds like. My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime. But the Jews objected, and so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. That was not my intention. Verse 20, for this reason I've asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. You know know what Paul did? He engaged the leaders of the community and explained to them his story. We call that a testimony. This is my story. Can't argue with somebody's story. It's what happened to them. This is what happened to them. I was here. This is what was said. This is what was done. This was a decision that was made. I did this, and then this happened. Nobody's going to argue with that. And then right at the end of it, he sneaks in the gospel. The reason I'm here is because I believe that I am a servant of the God who is the hope of Israel. Now they're listening. Now they're listening. Now, there's been no church service. There have been no songs sung. There have been no announcements made. That's how we know there was no church service because every church service I've ever been in, there's been an I firmly believe when we get to heaven, the first thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to go, before you enjoy eternity with me, first, a few announcements. Because I've never been with Christians where there weren't announcements. So I think that's going to be the first thing that happens. But Paul engages unbelievers with the gospel in spite of his circumstances. He's not free. But it's almost as if that part of him that wants to proclaim the message can't be hindered. It just takes a different form. Now jump down to verse 23. He follows that meeting up with another meeting. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. Same group of people, but now it's growing. The group of people is growing. Now, this is how you know that you haven't offended them. They're wanting to talk with you more. Hey, we want to talk to you more about this. Paul says, well, I'm not exactly free to come over to your place for coffee. That doesn't matter. We'll come to you. We will come to you. Can I ask you an honest question? Has that been a big issue for you in the community that you serve in? Have you had people that have said, "We, we want to come to you? Not typically. Most of the time, the churches that I work with, it's all about trying to get people to come to them. Paul seemed to manage to have people want to come and talk to him. Fascinating. 
He met with them at his home because it was the only place he could meet them. And here's what we're told. He witnessed to them from morning till evening. Here it comes again. Paul's burden to share the gospel just keeps coming out. But Paul, you're not free. Doesn't seem to matter. You're hindered. You got a guard. Can you imagine that poor guard? Probably a Roman centurion. Sitting there with Paul. And Paul's like, well, it's just the two of us. Might as well share some of the gospel with you. This guy probably knew the gospel better than anybody. When we lived in Carlisle, one of the hobbies that I sort of gave up when I moved to Western PA was I'm very into history, and I would give guided tours of the battlefield at Gettysburg. We only lived about 40 minutes from Gettysburg, and I'm very much into the history of the Battle of Gettysburg. So anybody that came through town, friend, missionary, out-of-town family, something like that in the church, I'd say, I'll give you a tour of Gettysburg, and I still, I've been back to do it once since we moved here. But I often joke with people, Sherry has been around for so many of those tours, she could probably do the tour by herself, even though she doesn't have my love of history, she's heard it so many times. That centurion probably heard the gospel so many times that if you would have asked him, he probably could have told you. Just because that's where he was. Verse 28. Here's the message of the gospel, by the way, that Paul presents. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Capture this, would you? Paul is under house arrest. He is not free. His itinerary is being controlled by the government. And it is not stopping him one bit from sharing the gospel. He's not running around complaining about his circumstances. We don't hear one word of complaint. Woe is me. My story is so sad. He is absolutely moving forward. It's just in a different format. Instead of Paul doing a missionary journey to people, now people are coming to him. He doesn't rant and rave about his health. He doesn't throw a tirade about the government. He's not grumbling about how unfair God is. He's not cursing his bad luck. He's not wishing for a better story. He's not debating with the religious leaders. He's not debating with the community leaders about the benefits of vaccines. He's just focused on the gospel. That's what he's communicating. And it didn't work out the way that he thought it would work out, perhaps. And so he just says, there's got to be a different way. But his passion comes through. He puts his head down. He trusts God. He keeps on serving. And here is the fascinating thing for me. When we get to the end of the story, Luke, the author of Acts, has the audacity to describe the scenario this way. In verse 31, we're told, he, that is Paul, proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Are you kidding me? This man's got hindrances all over the place. And yet as Luke observes, he says, nothing hindering Paul. No hindrances here. I wonder, do you think that the contemporary church could learn something from Paul's approach to would-be hindrances? 
Do you think that maybe there's something about our approach during this time that we have leaned a little bit too much in the direction of complaining about our hindrances, what we can't do, what we wish we could do, how it isn't fair, how it isn't right, how there's a conspiracy. Is it possible that we have moved so far away from our mission to proclaim the gospel that we have gotten sidetracked and all we can see are hindrances, and yet here is Luke saying, no hindrances. In a season that has felt like the epitome of hindrances, when attendance figures and budget figures and board decisions and government decisions have all weighed so heavily, and now pastoral transition, the natural response would be to say, let's just tread water for a while. Let's just hold on for a while, and maybe normal will eventually come back. That's not what Paul did. Everything around him pointed to discouragement and defeat and despair. Paul pressed on. And I'd like to leave you today with two observations that I hope will encourage you in this season that you as a congregation are headed into. The first is this. The sovereignty of God is a strange thing. What we sometimes refer to as a bad day God often looks at and says, no, it was actually a good day. And what we sometimes refer to as a good day, God looks at and says, no, that was a bad day. If we take on the role of being sovereign, if we take on the role of being in control, I guarantee you we are going to mislabel our days. And evidence number one is God sent his son, and his son was absolutely brutalized. The pain of crucifixion was so great, there wasn't a word to describe it. The word was created that we use today without even being aware of it, excruciating. Crucify is in the middle of that word excruciating. So great was the pain of crucifixion, they had to create a word to be able to describe it. It was excruciating pain. Those who stood by that day looked at what was going on as Jesus hung on the cross and none of them would have described it as a good day. Their lives were devastated. This was horrible. This was the worst possible outcome. Because in the back of their minds, they had a picture that Jesus was going to restore the Jewish nation, kick Rome to the curb, and that was the way it was going to play out. That was not God's plan at all. God had a different plan. It involved dying for my sin, not just restoring a government, but dying for my sin, not lifting up a nation, but creating a new community called the church. We in retrospect, now look back on that day and we call it Good Friday. In the sovereignty of God, what often to us looks distasteful is actually very good. And the things that he throws into our lives sometimes that we see as monkey wrenches that are messing everything up are actually his gifts to us to sanctify us and make us more like him. In my first church, I had two elders, and one of them was not able to walk. His name was Russell, and Russell had had a stroke, and every Sunday, 
Russell was the first one at church, but he had to be driven to church. He only lived a couple hundred yards from the church, but every Sunday, Russell needed to be put in a car and brought to church by his wife and his unbelieving son. His unbelieving son would get him dressed, load him into the car, drive him to the church, help him to get into the church, get in his car and drive back home and then repeat the same thing. But his son Bruce would never come into the church. Russell was so faithful. Russell was a prayer warrior. He was a supporter of mine as pastor. I loved Russell. And every once in a while when Russell would be moving from one room to another, he would lose his balance and he would fall. And it was just humiliating because we would all have to help Russell to get up into a chair He was a very dignified man, and it had to be devastating for him. But he was so faithful. And there were times when I prayed, Lord, could you please take what exists in this man's heart and sprinkle it into everybody's oatmeal in the whole church? Because I just wished everybody had a passion for Jesus like Russell did. God never saw fit to heal Russell. And I stood at his bedside the day that he died. But an amazing thing happened. Not too long after Russell went to heaven, one Sunday his son Bruce showed up in church. Sat back in the corner. I was curious. I didn't know what went on. So I approached Bruce and I said, Bruce, I'm so glad you're here. I've never seen you here before on a Sunday. And he said, I got right with God. And I accepted Jesus as my savior. Bruce later became a member of the governance of that church. God had a plan. My plan was to make Russell better, which would have served me as lead pastor much better. You know, a healthy elder would have been better for me than an elder that couldn't walk. That was my selfish plan. God had a plan that he was working out through Russell's faithfulness and through his love for Jesus. It had an impact on his son. What I call a bad day, God often calls a good day. What I call a challenging season, God calls a wonderful opportunity. In the sovereignty of God, what seems to be a hindrance is often not. In the words of Joseph from the Old Testament, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. In your life today, you might be experiencing things that feel like they are a hindrance. If only, if only, if only I were healthier, if only I had this, if only my family looked different, if only this were my story. Please know, a sovereign God is at work even now. And as your church faces a season of transition, this doesn't have to be treading water time. This doesn't have to be a bad season. This doesn't have to be a time when you're just going to hold on for dear life until a new pastor comes. This can be a time where ministry can grow. This can be a time when the gospel continues to shine as it has for many years from this parcel of property. It doesn't have to be a downtime. In the sovereignty of God, he is at work, working all things together for In the words of Tim Keller, the author from New York City, God is currently doing about a million things in your life right now. You're probably aware of 10. We don't know. So in the sovereignty of God, we just trust. 
we just walk forward and say, God, I don't understand all of this, but you're sovereign, and so I'm not going to be complaining. I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to trust you and walk with you. And then the second thing I want to leave you with is the opportunities that are in front of you today. It's tempting when a church goes through pastoral transition to think in terms of the future, but the future six months from now or a year from now, once we get settled, once we get a new pastor, once this happens. But observe that Paul didn't do that. When he got to Rome with all the hindrances that were around him, he immediately devoted himself not to just exposing the injustice of his situation, which was very real, but rather he saw opportunities. In verse 15, he was encouraged by the contact he had with Christians. God was developing gratitude in him. Hey, these Christians came all the way out to meet me, and I'm under arrest, and yet they didn't care about that. They came out to meet me on the road, and he was encouraged by that. Is God developing gratitude in your heart this morning? In verse 17, Paul speaks with Jewish leaders, and he shares the gospel with them. There's an evangelistic opportunity. You don't need a new pastor to Spread the gospel to your next door neighbor. You can be praying for a coworker. You can be sharing the truth of Jesus with a family member at the Thanksgiving table, whether or not you've got a pastor. You can do that. In verse 30, he sticks with his approach for two years. This wasn't like a week that he did this. Is God developing some perseverance in your soul? Is he developing the gift of being faithful? Because now is the time. Now is not the time for you to wander away. Now is the time for you to step up. And you heard Jim say this morning, the weight is heavy of leadership. You can do something about that. Be faithful. Whatever corner of ministry God has called you to, step up. Pray more than you've ever prayed before. Give a little bit more than you've ever given. Serve a little bit more than you've ever served. Perhaps God's developing that faithful spirit in you. And then verse 31, he ministered boldly. Boldly. In spite of everything around him, he had confidence in God. I'm not living in fear. I'm not anxious. The man who's under house arrest is ministering boldly. Right now, you might be feeling a little hindered as a congregation. Right now, you might be feeling as if It's time to just tread water and hold on. No. No, the gospel is not hindered in Warren. It doesn't have to be. Let me close with asking you one question. If you were a guy who, or a gal, who was so devoted to spreading the gospel, but you found yourself under house arrest, you can't go anywhere. would you do? Would there be any way for you to take what God had laid on your heart to communicate to someone and get the word out without actually being there in person to preach a sermon or teach a Sunday school class? What if, oh, I don't know, I'll just make something up. What if you wrote a letter? No, that would never work. Can you imagine Paul writing a letter I mean, no way that could work, right? 
it would be much easier for him to just complain about his circumstances and wait for the day when the door opens and he's free. What good would a letter, I mean, we're just talking about a letter. What good would a letter do? Half the New Testament. Half the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writing letters. What is it that God wants to do in your life through you that may seem almost trivial, but unhindered by his spirit could change the world? God bless.